episode of the China Path podcast for 2019. James Scullin here from the Australia China Business Council. On this episode, we speak with Danny Armstrong, managing partner from Shinewing Australia, on having an in-market presence in China. We look at what a business needs to consider being on the ground in China, how an e-commerce channel can test the waters of the market for your product, the proposition of leapfrogging competition in third and fourth tier cities, and transferring funds out of China. Danny was general director and country head for CBA in Vietnam for five years, leading the team that licensed and operationalized the bank in Vietnam. In 2011, he joined NAB as general manager and country head China Banking to license and operationalize the bank on the China mainland. Whilst in China, he also served on the board of the Australia Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai. Danny joined Shinewing Australia as managing partner in October 2017. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here with Danny Armstrong, the managing partner of Shinewing Australia. Danny, happy new year and thanks a lot for dropping by to the podcast. Yeah, happy new year, James. Great to be with you. Um, so, Danny, today we're going to talk about the, the benefits of having an in-market presence in China. To begin with, what would you say the, the overall benefits are to be gained from an in-market presence in a place like China rather than flying in or flying out? Do you think there's something particular about the nature of doing business with China that, that having an on-the-ground presence is essential? I think China's obviously a very different market to Australia, very different uh, legal system, very different regulatory structure, obviously a different language spoken and obviously very different cultural elements. So I think being on the ground can give you obviously different perspectives mm. and I think just naturally by being on the ground you absorb more information about what's going on in the market, mm. not just in your work life, but also in your daily life as a consumer, as a family member, as a parent, sure. uh, whatever the case may be. I don't think that's necessarily peculiar to China. I think it stands to reason that in any market, if you're uh, physically present in the market, you find about out more about what's going on in the market. I'm sure that's true of Australia as well. Mm. Well, maybe something about the, the, the fast-changing pace of the China market where year-on-year year something might be completely different between your trips to China. Yeah, ma- many people who uh, have worked in China for a period and worked in Australia or come back to Australia for a period, uh, I don't say this in a derogatory way, find Australia a bit of a, a slower business pace. There's no doubt. I, mm. I lived in Shanghai for five and a half years and there's no doubt that China is going at a 1,000 miles an hour, in particular uh, a city like Shanghai. Quite you one example. Um, when I uh, finished working um, in China, I came back to Australia and I was working for a property company here and I had cause to travel back to China uh, maybe about six months later mm. for the first time. 
When I left China, there were no um, bike hire companies on the road in Shanghai. Yeah. When I went back six months later, I think there were four different bike hire companies, mm. each with something like 500,000 to a million bikes on the streets in Shanghai. Yeah. It was a shock how extraordinarily quickly not only one had got up and running, but three had fast followed. Yeah, well, a whole industry. A whole industry was created in six months, and I sort of went, wow, yeah. that's unbelievable. <laughs> so, Danny, how does a business know if it's, if it's ready to establish an on-the-ground presence in China? Do you think a company needs some degree of market penetration prior to perhaps setting up an office in China? I think uh, first you need to determine whether there's a need for your business to establish locally, depending what your service is or what your product is and the nature of how that product is intended to be sold or distributed in the China market. So often with physical goods, people start with um, an online presence if that's conducive because that's uh, an easier entry path a cheaper entry path. Mm. You don't necessarily need to hire staff, go through particular licensing requirements, uh, registrations, etc. Yeah. Um, an online platform can help you do many elements of that. Mm. But if the nature of your product is such that it is potentially better distributed in a physical sense, then you might think about, well, how do I find an appropriate distributor to work with? Mm. And you might still not do that in-country. You might go to a trade show, you might go on a trade mission with, um, you know, with Austrade or the Victorian government, for mm. argument's sake, or you might have an advisor you appoint to assist you make the right connections. But I think there's many elements that you need to think through. Mm. Take, for example... If you're marketing in product, your product in China, you obviously need to market in Chinese mm. and you need to update your website or create your website in Chinese and then update it, keep it up to date. If you're selling on online platforms, you need to have a rigorous return process. You need to have a rigorous after-sales process for your product. So there's only so far, I think, you can take those aspects with a third-party provider doing that for you. Mm. At a particular point in time, particularly if you're successful, you will need to get on the ground and start managing elements of that process yourself. Mm. Are, are there some sectors where you think uh, the appeals of an in-market presence are perhaps greater in China? Uh, I think definitely with, uh, you know, with services, you must be on the ground. So, okay. Um, uh, you know, it, it sounds pretty obvious. I ran a bank in China. Well, you've got to be physically on the ground if you're going to deliver services in market just by the nature of it. I think with physical goods, again, it depends on your good. You might, and depends on your relationship with your distributor or with the online platform that you're working with. Mm. If you manage to build a good relationship with a distributor and you're happy with how the pie is carved up and... Um, and your payment process works effectively, then then maybe you'd be happy just uh, doing that relationship from afar, and periodically visiting your distributor or your or the network you're working with in China mm. to keep your relationships up to date. But maybe never physically getting on the ground. Yeah. 
we do hear some horror stories over time that people have had long-standing relationships and one day they, they didn't get paid and there's a big shipment sitting on the dock offshore and uh, challenging to get it back. But by and large, you know, at the end of the day, international trade's about trust and yep. it's about where you are on the trust continuum with the party that you're supplying to and you may not ever need a physical presence depending on your style of product. So I think another thing, James, uh, in my experience uh, living in China is that Chinese people, as a generalisation, want your product to be famous and well-known uh, in your home market before you try to sell it to them. Mm. And they will research that assiduously online while they're in the store or while they're right. shopping online. Yeah. They will be researching and expecting, largely that you don't try and sell them something that you're not renowned for in your home market yeah. before you're trying to sell it into the China market. Right. At China Wing Australia, what type of companies do you have looking to receive assistance in setting up a presence in, in China on the ground? Yeah, I'll, let me give you a few uh, different examples. There, there are many. As one example, we, we have a large university client who had an opportunity to um, go into China and establish uh, a joint venture uh, research undertaking with a Chinese university and with some uh, Chinese government entities. Mm. So we assisted them with a range of different things. Um, one, some, uh, some due diligence on the counterparties they were looking to enter into that arrangement with. Our sister business in China, Shining China, has a large established network on the ground, uh, 24 offices, 300 partners, 7,000 people, mm. and they assist us with elements of that process. Uh, and ultimately, um, we worked through that in terms of uh, negotiation of the arrangement and the contractual agreement, and the client ended up with you know a $100 million research joint venture mm. um, with a 10-year time frame yeah, to, wow. ex to execute on that, as one example. Mm. So that was in a JV. Yeah. Um, a different example, we had a large uh, global social media platform looking to establish in uh, China, mm. and we were looking after their Australian uh, operation. They were US-based. And uh, they wanted us to help them to establish their own entity on the China mainland. And, and we gave them some advice around that. And they chose to establish a wholly foreign-owned enterprise, or a WUFI, yep. in the China market in uh, Shenzhen. And they wanted that particularly so that they could apply their standards and ensure that they had globally consistent reporting throughout their operation. So, uh, again, with, we worked with uh, uh, some of the people we know in Shining and Shenzhen and other people in that market to help them to establish the local enterprise, hire staff, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Is there, is there something particularly tricky about setting up a social media company in China? Uh, I'm not sure there's anything particularly tricky about it. Um, you, you need to take care uh, in terms of complying with China's laws and regulations around um, if people are on social media platforms, they generally have to be identified by my understanding now to comply with Chinese laws so okay. that if they make comments that might be derogatory or might be on 
unsavoury topics, mm. for example, uh, that the authorities might want that commentary removed or want those people removed from the platform. Mm. I'm not an expert in that, but I think there'd be those elements you'd certainly need to comply with. Okay. A third example, just to give you a broader one, is you know we've got a very uh, a client who's a very large Australian fruit producer, and um, they also aggregate and pack product for other growers and suppliers. And a small amount of their operation today is export, but they uh, they have um, additional capacity to supply high quality uh, fruit products, stone fruit. Uh, apples, um, cherries, a variety of different things. Yep. So we're working with them to uh, introduce them to some trusted distribution partners um, in Shanghai and okay. also in uh, southern China mm. to clients who are clients of Shinewing China who have large wholesale distribution businesses in those markets. And our value proposition around that is... These are clients in our network who we produce their financial information, audit their financial information, understand their principles, their operating ethics, etc., etc. Mm. And we think that's a that's a good path for an introduction to to meet a a trusted counterparty to work with on the China mainland. Sure. Well, it's the ultimate bridge between supplier and buyer, really. Yeah. Correct. That's right. Um, so, Danny, with the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, um, a, a lot of exporters in Australia receive reduced tariffs entering into China, um, but there was also the service element where organisations in aged care, health and tourism were able to set up their own offices in China without, without the need of a JV. At Chinaming Australia, are you seeing businesses in the services sector looking to set up their offices in China as a result from CHAFTA? Uh, I can't think of particular examples in the sectors you've mentioned where people have looked to establish offices yet. Yeah. Um, but I'd say that's potentially coming as scale grows. So take healthcare and take uh, aged care, for example. Yeah. Uh, we're working with you know a reasonably large aged care operator in Australia who has entered into a JV with uh, a large uh, privately owned investment enterprise in China to establish uh, an initial aged care facility in China, mm. which, is, which is now operational. And now they're looking to significantly uh, ramp that up. Okay. So we're helping them with a number of different elements, one element being um, the funding arrangement around that, equity funding and debt funding out of, uh, out of China and Asia more broadly to assist with that potential ramp-up. And I suspect over time, as they establish more facilities in that JV on the China mainland, that they will look to have a physical presence. I don't know, but I, I think they will. Okay. So thinking of places to set up a business in China... Do you think major cities like Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou are too swamped with foreign firms these days and that perhaps businesses should consider moving to third and fourth tier cities where perhaps they can leapfrog the competition in those, in those larger cities? Yeah, well, we hear this a lot. I think it depends on, again, your product or your service and, and the, the target client market that you are going after. I think if you have a... Uh, a product that um, 
you know, may already be uh, well penetrated in the market in tier one cities, then obviously tier three and four cities can be a good option yep. because typically we hear that they have less access to breadth of product that might be available in a Shanghai or a Beijing or a Guangzhou, for example. Yep. And I think the benefits are, are many. One is uh, you're dealing with a discrete market where you have the opportunity to test your product out with your client base, do your marketing locally, see how it goes, refine the product, maybe potentially then take it to a, a tier two city or a tier one city or more broadly in China. Mm. Alternatively, uh, as you know, James, many of these, um, even third and fourth tier cities, are very large, discrete markets in their own right. Yeah. So you may, as you alluded to in your question, have the opportunity to out-compete in that market simply because there's far less competition and far less foreign competition bringing unique offerings into that market but still pretty solid demand characteristic. So you may choose to refine your offering in that market and just stick to that market or take it from the city into the broader province and that might be big enough for you. Yeah. So do, do you see businesses making that move or do you see businesses establishing first in you know maybe a centre like Shanghai where there's significant Australian government support and there's a large Australian business community? Do you see businesses actually kind of making that solo move to a place where maybe the opportunity is greater but the support network is, is less? I've seen some elements of that, but okay. I've got to say predominantly we're still seeing people uh, targeting uh, a Shanghai or a, or a Shenzhen or a, or a Guangzhou or some of the major cities. Yeah. I'm not sure that's necessarily about the, um, the Australian government support or um, the broader Australian business community. You're right, there's a lot bigger Australian business community, particularly in places like Shanghai. Yeah. I'm not sure it's particularly about that. I think it's been more about the nature of their particular offering okay. and um, you know their offering being more suited to those markets because probably of the scale of the businesses that we typically we typically deal with. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So do you think there's a there's a checklist of sorts or a, a checklist of regulatory steps that a business needs to tick off before establishing um, a, a presence in China? I think it depends, again, on your industry. Okay. So, yep. so China, as you know, has, has a number of restricted areas of business where foreign um, parties can't play. Um, obvious areas, things like defence and some of the elements around energy, uh, around uh, some aspects of mass transport, etc., are restricted. I think there's other sectors that are restricted in, in many countries, so for example, banking. So mm. you know, when we established uh, uh, the National Australia Bank in China, obviously, if you're taking deposits from the general public, then um, the regulators want to make sure that you're a competent, <laughs> and b that you're that you're going to do the right thing with depositors' money. So those restricted areas are obvious. Yeah, I think the other ones that are obvious are, are things like food and supplements. If you're going to be um, distributing food products or supplement products, vitamins, etc., into the China market, um, then people, uh, then the regulators want to ensure that your products are safe mm. and they're not going to uh, hurt people. So, I think it depends on the the nature of the the product that you have. Um, there's no particular set checklist. I would say. Okay. Um, 
I'm probably, you know, I would say you need to get good advice pertinent to your particular sector, like, like you would in Australia. Go and find out what the rules and regulations say. There's different elements that, that apply to products in China. For example, um, depending on your product, you know, there's there's labelling requirements, obviously. Yeah. There's requirements uh, in some sectors of food around protocol for particular types of product. Yeah. Um, for example, you know, with, with beef products, there's a, there's a so-called blue tongue line in Australia where... Above the blue tongue line, uh, those products uh, can't be exported to China, by my understanding. Um, there's different protocol around different types of fruits where maybe, uh, for example, apples can go from Tasmania to China but not necessarily from parts of the Australian mainland. Yeah. So, uh, And there's different requirements around quarantine for certain production facilities in Australia to be ticked off and approved by the Chinese quarantine authorities before you can export from that facility into the China market. So um, I've given you a very broad brush snapshot there, but obviously the key thing is to get advice around your product, your industry, your sector, and understand what you're getting into like like you would in Australia. Thinking of protocols, I remember speaking with someone um, a few years ago about potential opportunities of exporting kangaroo meat to China, and I believe that you know kangaroo still doesn't have a protocol in China. Dealt with a very large Australian producer, farmer of <laughs> of kangaroo uh, in Australia, and uh, when I was uh, at NAB in China, and we were trying to assist with. Uh, elements of opening up that export market. Uh, I'm not sure where it's ultimately got to. I came back about two and a half years ago and to the best of my understanding, the protocol still hadn't been approved at that stage despite some entreaties from the Ag Minister and a few others. But uh, my understanding, reading the literature, was that there was uh, significant potential benefits from the quality of kangaroo meat, how lean it is, how good it is uh, for athletes, etc., etc. But... I don't think it had been cracked to date, but I might be wrong. And so is that, the, is that at the high government-to-government level where those protocols are agreed upon? Uh, typically, yes. You, you're, dealing with, um, you're dealing with quarantine authorities and mm. you're dealing with, you know, uh, ministries, mm. uh, okay. agriculture ministries, etc., etc. So, yes, there's probably a fair bit of lobbying that goes on on both sides as well. Now, Danny, not every business is blessed with the... Uh, international reach of Shinewing having offices all across China. How does a business go about hiring locally employed staff when in China? What do they need to consider in having the best uh, intercultural benefits of uh, a multicultural staff base? Well, I think there's lots of people that can advise you on the technicalities of hiring staff and the regulatory aspects of that, so I won't necessarily talk about that. But one of our core strengths as an organisation and our points of differentiation is just how diverse um, our people are. Mm. So we have uh, 260-odd people in our Australian business. They speak uh, 28 different languages. They identify with 26 different nationalities. And in terms of China, uh, 25% of them speak Mandarin, Mm. but 40% of them speak an Asian language uh, more broadly. Um, I don't think it's all about language, by the way. Language obviously helps. In my experience, um, what's important with uh, cross-border business, particularly uh, with a place that's, that's quite different to Australia, is true intercultural communication, okay. or cross-cultural communication. 
and um, the real benefits that I've seen in uh, both Shinewing's business and in a couple of the businesses that I've worked in before is having some people in your business who've worked in both environments and can help you with that element of interpreting how business is done in China, for example, how business is, in, is done in Australia, mm. and then truly communicating so that the two parties can actually get stuff done. In China, do you think that there's a feeling that the opportunity of e-commerce gives some businesses the impression that maybe they can take a backseat approach to doing business in China and that they can maybe manage their China engagement from afar via those e-commerce channels rather than having boots on the ground? Yeah. If I can take a step back, James, I, I think there's um, three potential elements in my experience okay. that uh, a number of Australian businesses are interested in related to China. Okay. So the first, probably most obvious one, is export, exporting their product or their service to China. And as a subset of that, maybe selling their product um, on an online platform as an easier entry point or starting point yep. prior to you know, um, having to get product registrations or licensing requirements or hiring staff or sourcing premises and all that sort of stuff. Maybe yep. I can come back to that. Mm. The second one um, is sourcing inputs from uh, manufactured inputs into Australian supply chains from places like China. So, um, you know, uh, one of the well-known economists in Australia is on the record as saying, you know, in a, in a so-called normal economy, 20% of the economy is manufacturing. In Australia, uh, the latest data I've seen suggests that we're sub-8% of our economy is manufacturing okay. and declining. So typically, not always... If you need manufactured inputs in Australia, then many of them are sourced from overseas and in particular from places like China. Mm. And the third element we've seen a lot of interest from Australian business is, is around capital. And typically that's been equity capital from places like China. But increasingly, as things tighten up in our local uh, banking market, perhaps uh, partially as a function of some of the outcomes of the Royal Commission, we're seeing demand for debt capital from places like Hong Kong okay. uh, and elsewhere in Asia as well. Um, to get back to your question about um, e-commerce, um, I think, again, it depends on your product and how, how far you are along your China journey. Okay. So maybe as you start out, like I said, the easier entry point is uh, establish an online presence. And there are many different online platforms in China. So, again, I think it's important to get some advice around that. And depending on the demographic you're targeting, the target client that you have in mind, there may be different platforms that are better for you. Mm. And the scale of your operation, there may be different platforms that are better for, better for you than others. Um, the things that you need to think about is I don't... You know, things obviously don't just end with uh, putting your product on a platform and then hoping you achieve sales. Mm. You've got to do some marketing, of course, and if you're going to market your product, A, you need some financial resources to do that, but B, if you're marketing in China, you obviously need to market in Chinese. Mm. So you need people to help you do that. Then typically there's requirements around after-sales service for your product, uh, you know, it might be the logistics arrangements or it might be around 
a product return if somebody's not happy with your product. So you need to be able to cover off all these elements. You may be able to do that for a period, maybe for forever, Mm. depending on the nature of your product on an online platform. But typically, as your scale grows, particularly if you're successful, you may ultimately need to have your own people on the ground. And then, depending on the demand characteristic again for your product, you may choose to also go into physical distribution on the on the China mainland. Okay. Be that into, you know, supermarkets and the like, or, or other retail distribution, depending on the nature of your product. And probably, if you're if you're taking that next step, and you're then thinking about actual product registrations and licensing and whatever, you definitely need to have a presence. The other thing I would think is that uh, um, certainly if you're uh, selling services, then you need to have a presence in China. So okay. I was running a bank in China. Obviously, you need to have a physical presence if you're selling a, a service offering into the China market. In your experience, has the Shanghai Free Trade Zone um, proved important for businesses to maybe dip their toes into the China market through e-commerce? Have you seen a lot of, a lo- a lot of usage of the Shanghai Free Trade Zone for that purpose? I wouldn't say I'm necessarily the most up-to-date person, but um, in my experience, uh, it hasn't provided particular benefit. Okay. I have heard of aspects of uh, business where it has been worthwhile, but they've been fairly limited to the best of my understanding. Mm, okay. Um, so if a, if a business has spent some time in China and is now considering moving back to Australia, um, how should they prepare for that? Uh, prepare hard. Okay. <laughs> um, it's actually quite difficult to shut down a business in China. Right, uh, okay. I've, I've had a little bit of experience uh, with that. Um, it takes it takes time and planning and a lot of uh, negotiation with local authorities okay. and also with the local tax man. Right. It's his last chance to uh, ensure you've paid all of your tax obligations while your business was operating in China. Okay. Uh, and generally, um, you've got to make sure that, uh, that 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 very thorough process is obviously ticked off to the China tax man's um, satisfaction. In my experience, um, yeah, though, uh, repatriating you know profits to China uh, from China, beg your pardon, to Australia is not necessarily an issue as long as you can prove you've paid your due tax and as long as you're paying um, you know profits you're not trying to repatriate money when you're still in a loss situation in China okay uh, that's that's really no issue it's Mm. more about capital payments I think sometimes people in Australia get confused between the capital account and the current account that China's capital account is closed both ways okay if you want to invest money into China or withdraw capital from China that requires an approval from uh, the foreign exchange regulator, the state administration of foreign exchange, okay. both ways. Okay. If you're doing trade, then obviously if your documentation's correct, payment can happen. That's okay. on the current account. Okay. I think sometimes people get confused about those two things. Right. 
And, and, and so what do you think the, the trend is of re- relocation out of China? Do you think it's becoming um, a little easier for businesses to have dealings with the Chinese tax man, as you say, or do you think it's becoming a little, a little thornier? I'm a little bit out of touch. Um, I, I wouldn't have say, say um, based on things that I've heard, that it's necessarily approved or improved or declined. I'd say it's, uh, say it's, you know, it's pretty challenging. So you've got to make sure that you've got the right documentation and you can, um, you can prove your position and that you've, you've paid your dues um, as owed, like you would have to do in any jurisdiction, really. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, it's been fantastic discussing the uh, benefits of having an in-market presence today, Danny. Um, you have decades of experience in Asia. Do you still manage to get to China now and then? Yeah, the thing I love about my job now is uh, I get to live in Australia, which is wonderful, a nice environment to go and have a run in uh, and enjoy with my family. Yeah. But I get to regularly uh, travel to Asia, um, mainly to places like Hong Kong and, and the China mainland, probably about half a dozen times a year. Yep. And get that excitement of the buzz of, uh, you know, the speed of the market in, in Asia and in particular in China, things going at uh, a thousand miles an hour and and it's a lot of fun yeah fantastic okay well all the best for the coming year for yourself and at charming australia thanks james shishini yeah cheers cheers yeah. My thanks to Danny for his insights on having an in-market presence in China. Shanwing Australia is an Australian-owned advisor and accounting firm operating nationally with an 80-year history here in Australia. Shanwing is the largest mainland domestic Chinese accounting firm and the network now has 57 offices across 14 countries and regions. While clients can range from small Aussie startups to large agri-exporters, universities to multinationals, they've also assisted in a large number of domestic and international IPOs in Asia, including acting as the key advisor on the recent dual listing of Yan Coal Australia in Hong Kong. For more information on Shanwing Australia, you can drop by to the podcast homepage at acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts, where you can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher or Yoku and listen to previous podcast episodes. Please do pass on the podcast to a friend, colleague or client who has an interest in China and may benefit from one of our episodes. We'd also like to thank the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade's Australia-China Council for their support of this podcast. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening and until next time, zai jian. <laughs>